0: today uh, we are continuing in this series we've been in on spiritual warfare and deliverance and we're entering into the third section of this uh, series and I'm really excited about that and I just want to say man if you made it through last week's message on demonic possession then I think we're over the hump in this series and you know we're gonna coast to the coast to the end here because that was you know it's an intense topic um, and I the first section of this series, this is a systematic teaching. Systematic is you break a complex topic down into smaller, more digestible parts, but they, also, they build on one another. And so if you missed that first section, we talked about, you know, why is there warfare? We live in a world at war spiritually. Why is that? Why would God allow that? If he's so good and loving, why would he allow all this? Why would he allow this enemy, this, this powerful enemy of our souls to come against us, you know? And we talked about our identity and authority in Christ to overcome all the power of the enemy. So that was the first section. If you've had questions about that or if you missed those, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to it. The second section, the 201 through 203 sermons, uh, we talked about types of warfare. So we talked about oppression, strongholds, and demonic possession last week. And then how to deal with that. What do you do if uh, you're—how do you— come against those different types of warfare. As we enter this third section, um, 301 through 303, um, we're going to have three messages talking about different strategic levels of spiritual warfare. And here's what I mean by that. The devil has different uh, tactics and strategies that he uses against us at different levels. And so we're going to talk about three levels of spiritual warfare personal spiritual warfare. So how the, what are the schemes, tactics, and strategies of the devil against individuals, against you as an individual, against me as an individual. Okay. Cause he has individual schemes, tactics, and strategies that he brings against people personally. Uh, second, the next sermon that we'll talk about corporate strategies, he has strategies, schemes and tactics, battle plans, if you will, to come against whole churches and church bodies to try to stop what God is doing in those churches. Right. Um, and we're going to talk about that. And then the third message in this uh, section of this series is his cultural strategies or uh, those strategies against nations or regions. Because sometimes different regions have different uh, cultures, uh, one to the other. And he has strategies that he's working in a culture to try to work about, uh, to, do, to, to do what he wants to do. And he's always working at all three of these levels. And so we're going to be talking about this. Why are we going to be talking about this Because 2 Corinthians 2 verse 11, which is a verse we've looked at before in this series, says, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Why are we not unaware of his schemes? So that he doesn't outwit us. So the apostle Paul saying, if we're unaware of what the devil's doing and how he works and what his purpose is, then he'll outwit us. Jumping to Ephesians 6, verse 11, it says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes, okay? So we need to be aware of his schemes, and we need to be able to take our stand against them, to fight back against them. So he brings his attack, we bring the counter-attack. What's interesting, though, what I want to point out this morning as we're diving into this, in both of these verses, the English word, the English translation is the same. And it's the word schemes. However, in the Greek, it's two completely different words. And so 2 Corinthians 2 verse 11, we're not unaware of of Satan's schemes. The Greek word is noema. And noema means a mental perception or a thought. It means a thought, but it's a thought with an evil purpose. So when he says we're not unaware of Satan's schemes here, Satan's noema, he's saying we're not unaware of Satan's evil purpose, meaning his end goal. So what is the goal that he's trying to work here? That's what he's saying we need to be aware of. Now jump to Ephesians 6.11. We put on the full armor so we can take our stand against the devil's schemes. The Greek word here is not noema, it's methodia. And methodia means this, cunning, arts, deceit, tricks, or crafts. In other words, it's deceptive methods. That's methodia. We get the word methods, right? That's related to that. Deceptive methods, strategies, and tactics that the enemy employs to get us to do what he wants. Okay? And we talked about this in the 101 section, but... Psalm 115, the Lord has given the earth to mankind. Highest heavens belong to God. He's given the earth to mankind. So the realm of the earth, mankind has authority. And so God works through us when we pray and we ask him and invite him into the realm that he's given us. And so John Wesley said God doesn't do anything except through prayer. Right? And so a simple way to think about that is God's given you sovereignty over your own life. And, and of course we're fallen and we need help and we need God, but he waits on us to give him permission because he's given us authority over our own lives, right? Well, in the same way, the devil has fallen out of heaven. He's been cast to earth, right? So he's in the realm of man now on the earth. So when he wants to do things in the earth, he has to work through our permission. He has to get our agreement. These are the spiritual laws that God set in place. Right? We talked about that. I did a whole sermon about it. Go back and listen to it. Um, And that that was the third sermon, by the way, uh, on our identity and authority in Christ. So the devil has to get our agreement. And if we agree with him, then we give him power and authority by our agreement. Now, if we know it's the devil and we know it's evil, we're not going to do it. And that's why all of his schemes, tactics, and strategies are deceptive. And here's the thing about deception. It's deceptive. What that means is you think it's not bad. You think it's good. You think you're doing something good, right or true. But in fact, you're deceived and you're doing something that the enemy wants or you're partnering with something that he wants. And so he's actually working his will through people, through control and through manipulation, right? And so what I wanna do in each of these sermons is i want to talk about his end purpose or goal right and then i want to talk about the methodia so i want to talk about the noema his end purpose goal in each of these levels and then i want to talk about the methodia the specific tactics and strategies that he uses to get us to to do his will so that uh he can accomplish his evil purpose 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 and 4 says this. Oh, and then oh, and then the last part of, of this is we're going to talk about the scheme, tactic, and strategy that God gives us, God's battle plan, and the weapons God gives us to come against each specific tactic and strategy. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4 says this. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the war of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. How many of you know that we do not just have one weapon, right? So often we think of the armor of God, that famous passage in Ephesians, and, and, and the only offensive weapon mentioned is the sword of the what? Of the spirit, which is the word of Truth or God. Yes. And so um, that's all we think we have. But this passage says that the weapons we fight with and the the word weapons there is plural. God gives us Many weapons that we can fight with, many tools that we can bring against the enemy. And I like the king, it says the weapons we fight with. The King James Version, I like the rendering better. It says the weapons of our warfare, our warfare. And the word warfare means our battle plan that we're bringing against the enemy. The weapons of our warfare and the word our warfare there is the word strategia. The weapons of the strategies, the battle plan that God gives us to bring against the enemy. And when we were coming into this series back in like April, May, the Lord was saying that he's preparing our church to go on the offensive when it comes to spiritual warfare. That we're not, so often we think as Christians, we, we are we resist the devil who'll flee from you, and we get this picture of just cowering behind our shield of faith, and we just have to take a beating and, and hope that the enemy stops soon, right? But no, we can go on the offensive with the battle plan God has given us and the weapons God has given us to bring the, the battle to the enemy. How many, how many of you have played like high school sports? All right, a lot of you. How many of you had a coach that said defense wins championships? Anybody ever hear that? I always hated that. You know why? Because I hated playing defense, you know? And in basketball, you have to play both, which is probably why I quit basketball after my sophomore year, and I played soccer, and I was a forward, so I just got to play offense all the time. And, and here's what I believe. You know, the best defense, you know, defense does win championships, but the best defense is a good offense. Can I get a good amen? Amen. All right, and so the Lord, this, this series and really the season we're in as a church is we're in a training camp. This is boot camp. The Lord is training us. As Ephesians would say, we're being equipped. We're being equipped to do the good works that the Lord has prepared for us to do, and some of those good works involve destroying the works of the devil. Amen? And being the executors or the military police of Jesus and executing his victory on the cross over the powers of this fallen world. Whew, that gets me excited. So, in our sermon today, I'm gonna talk about the personal strategy of of Satan that he comes against you personally uh, or people personally as individuals uh, with. So what is his, his goal in this? What is his noema against us as individuals? And if you're taking notes, by the way, I'm going to go through a, a whole lot of information, a whole lot of scripture, and a whole lot of things. So you, if you're taking notes, you need to listen fast and write fast today, because um, we're going to fly through this, hopefully. So what is his noema? His evil purpose, his main goal against individuals is to separate you from Jesus, to keep you separate from Jesus Christ. That is the end goal. Okay? So I want to talk about five specific tactics or strategies that he employs against individuals to accomplish this main goal of keeping you separated from Christ. Okay? And I'm going to list them out. And then we're going to work through these today. And these are the five main tactics that I've identified there. I'm sure there could be more, right? But these are the five main ones that we see throughout scripture. And by the way, they go in order of how close you are in proximity to Christ. And I'll explain that as we go. So there's ignorance. So like you don't know Christ at all. And he's working this tactic and strategy to keep you in ignorance away from Christ. There's unbelief. There's temptation. There's selfishness, and then there's isolation, okay? Five tactics or strategies the enemy uses against individuals. As we work through each of these, I'm going to talk about the deceptive mindset that he uses to to get you to agree with this tactic or strategy, and then we're going to talk about the weapon or the, the strategy of God, the strategia, the battle plan God gives us to counter each one of these things specifically. You see what I'm saying? Alright, so this is a lot of information, but I'm super excited about it. And if you will apply this, if you will learn this, then you'll know when I'm being, when I'm giving in to this tactic or strategy of the enemy, oh, God has, here's what God wants me to do to come against this, to overcome this, right? So we're learning how to fight. We're learning how to do spiritual warfare today on a personal level. And so number one, let's talk about ignorance, the, the first if people do not know Jesus Christ he wants to keep them not knowing Jesus Christ he wants them to think the Bible's just myths and fairy tales Jesus isn't real God's not real he wants to keep them in that place second Corinthians 4 verses 3 and 4 says and even if our gospel is veiled it is veiled to those who perish who are perishing the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So when it comes to people who don't know Christ yet, he is working to blind their hearts and minds so that they do not believe in Jesus, right? So that they are not saved. So they stay in the darkness. But even against believers, Hosea 4, 6 says this, my people, God says, are destroyed from lack of knowledge, You know, the New Testament says we need to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So when it comes to our faith, when it comes to spiritual warfare, ignorance is not bliss. It is destruction. It is death. And so we need to become aware not only of the enemy's tactics and strategies, we need to help people know who Jesus is. So what are the deceptive mindsets the enemy uses to keep people in ignorance. Remember, these are deceptive mindsets. Uh, as Second Corinthians 10 goes on to say, you know, uh, our weapons are powerful to, for demolishing strongholds and we, we demolish or we destroy, we tear down every high and lofty thing or every uh, high and lofty reasoning that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So these are reasons in people's minds. And you've, you've, uh, it, it has a lot to do with the reasons that you might hear that people are atheists. Okay, if you ask, it, oh, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God. Why is that? There's always a reason, right? There's a reason, and it's usually things like this. Well, you know, we have science, and everybody knows evolution is real now, and so, you know, kind of disproves God. Or you might have heard something like, well, you know, I'm not a fan of religion because we know that religion causes most of the wars on the earth and the killing of people, and so it's just, it's just a big facade, you know, I just don't believe in it, right? You know, the Bible can't be trusted. It's, it's, full of, it's been changed so much, it's full of mistakes and contradictions, and, and it's just fairy tales, Right? And so on, and so on, and so on, and so on. You know, some of the philosophical things. Well, how could, a, if the if a Christian God's so good and loving, how could he exist with all the pain, suffering, and evil in the world? Right? There's all these reasons people give. And here's what I've discovered in my own walk with God. There are answers to all of those questions. And here's, here's also what I've discovered. Most of those statements... I'll say it this way it's it's a lazy reason people give to not have to search for the truth. So at some point they they hear one of these things it sounds kind of true and here's what's going on at a spiritual level. And by the way I don't say this as someone judging those people. I say this as someone who used to live this way. (laughs) I used to be under this, and then I got enlightened by the Lord. And I realized, oh, wow, the deception that was going on in my own heart. You hear one of these statements, and you go, that sounds kind of good. And at a heart level, here's what's really going on. And if you're self-deceived, you probably don't even realize this is what's going on. You like your life, and you like your sin, and you don't want to have to give it up. And you know what God requires, or maybe you hear about, oh, if I'm a Christian, I have to change how I live. Uh so I'm resisting that really is what I'm resisting. I don't want to have to change or give up the things that I like that are sinful or that God says are sinful. And so I hear one of these statements. I go, well, that sounds good. Yeah, that's why. That's the reason. And when you search out each of these things and you look for the evidence and you weigh the evidence for or against God in each of these scenarios, you'll find there's a whole lot of evidence for the existence of God and the truth of scripture. Now, I don't have time to go through all of that today, but I will say this. In 2018, I did a sermon series, four-week series, called The Evidence of Faith, Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for, the evidence of things unseen. God doesn't want us to just have blind faith and just believe God exists, right? He's revealed himself. There's so much evidence on the earth of God. And by the way, it takes more faith to be an atheist than it does for me to believe in the God of Scripture. And that's just, that's actually just a philosophical fact Why do I say that? If you say there is no God, period, like what you're saying is, I know for a fact there is absolutely no God. That means the burden of proof is on you. And that's actually an arrogant statement because for you to have, if there is one proof of God somewhere in the universe, then that means God's real and God exists, right? So when you say, God's not real, and I know that, and I'm an atheist, you're claiming to have knowledge about everything in the universe. Because think about it. If there's, if there's someone across the earth that knows something you don't know that could prove God exists, what you're claiming by saying you're an atheist is that you know that that's not true. There's nothing like that, which means you know everything. You think about how prideful that is? And that takes more—it's it's, it's an unfactual statement, which means it's a statement of faith— I believe God's not real (laughs) and the burden of proof is on you. So when you go looking for evidence of, first of all, the reality of, that's why the Bible says the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's a foolish, arrogant statement to say, I am an atheist. And I know for a fact, there is no God. Wow. You know, everything, you know, everything about everything in the universe. Wow. You're really smart. At best people can say, I'm an agnostic, which means, I don't know. I don't know if there's a God. That's, that's a very valid thing that people could say. But when you go look for the evidence for the existence of God, what you're going to find is there's a ton of evidence. A ton of evidence. So in that sermon series I did, Evidence of Faith, um, I did four sermons. One was on scientific evidence for the existence of God. Um, the second message was historical evidence Uh, For the existence of God, but basically the validity of scripture and even archaeological findings and and all of that uh, that support the fact that the Bible is not just, uh, you know, a metaphorical poetic book, but it is a history book and its history is accurate. Um, The third message, I believe, was moral evidence for the existence of God. Um, moral laws that are consistent across cultures, down through history. For some reason, for some reason, we as pe- everyone believes that stealing is wrong, lying is wrong, cheating is wrong, killing is wrong, um, so on and so on. There's a lot more to it than that. And then philosophical evidence: How could a good and loving God allow all the pain, suffering, and evil in the world? And we walk through all of those. If you want more info on all those, or if you know people, or you maybe struggle with those questions, if those things are just constantly holding you back in your faith. I want to encourage you, go check those messages out. They're on YouTube and the podcast places, right? Um, but you should also check out the books, um, Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, Case for Faith by Lee Strobel, um, The Problem of God by Mark Clark, who's a Canadian pastor. Those books address all of those questions, okay? And what you're going to find is, and here's what I found. By the way, this is my journey. When I, got, when I came back to faith in Christ, it was very supernatural, Um, I knew God was real. And very shortly after I began having experiences with the Holy spirit that I was not seeking prophetic dreams. I began to hear the voice of the Lord. I just, when you have experiences like that, you know, that, you know, God is real. Right. But I went, I kind of dropped out of college for a semester. I went back to college. I know God's real. I'm having these experiences, but my mind, I had a lot of cognitive dissonance because my mind was like, but how do we know? Like I, my mind was still struggling with all those questions and i went on a journey and i started searching and the lord says if you if you lack wisdom ask him and he'll give it to you and so that's a challenge and here's what i would say if you're not sure if god's real if you wrestle with any of those questions or you know someone who does don't be lazy seek out the answers All those statements, you know, religion causes most wars, it's actually not true. There's been about 1,763 wars in the history of humanity. I think uh, religious reasons account for about 2% of all deaths in war. The 20th century, the 1900s, was the bloodiest century in the history of mankind. 108 million plus people died in warfare. Do you know what the number one reason was when you study it out? Communist ideologies and totalitarian dictatorships not it was actually that let 's kill religion <laughs> and so uh, that 's actually an, a not a true statement factually and there 's a whole book, and I forget the author who studied all the wars of history in recorded history and the reasons for them, and again, religion accounts for about two percent of deaths so these are what I would call lazy statements by people who just really don 't want to believe go search for the answers, okay, go search for the answers so. What, what, what is, um, the weapons of our warfare that God has given us to come against this tactic and strategy of ignorance? I'm going to mention two things, preaching the gospel and sharing your story, sharing your faith through your, your personal story. Preaching the gospel is spiritual warfare. It is coming against the ignorance, the blinding of men's hearts of the enemy You are literally speaking light into people's hearts, the light of the glory of the knowledge of Jesus. Romans 10, 13 through 15 says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And think about this. Well, I'll say this when I'm done reading it. How then can they call on one in whom they've not believed? And how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? Think about this. There are whole cultures and whole whole nations, whole tribes on the earth that do not know who Jesus is. There are whole societies and people groups that if you go in saying the name of Jesus, they're going to be like, who's that? Don't even know who you're talking about. When we were in Michigan, my wife and I at our last church, uh, our kids pastor had a, a famous story that she would tell often to remind us of why we do what we do, and it was a kid who lived in that local neighborhood who came, like five, six-year-old kid who came to our church, was in kids ministry, and of course that particular day, oh, let's read the Bible. Oh, Jesus this, and Jesus that, and Jesus loves you, and Jesus, let's sing a song about Jesus, and the kid just looked so confused and bewildered the whole time, and finally the kid goes, who is Jesus? Jesus. And he was so confused. And when our kids pastor at that church goes, well, what, what do you mean? Who's Jesus? You know? And he goes, well, I just thought that was a curse word. Cause I hear my parents say that all the time. His only understanding of who Jesus is, is that it was just a curse word. He didn't realize it's a real person. God in the flesh who died for your sins. And he found out that day. Now I'm telling you, there are people in this region where we live, there are kids who do not know who Jesus is. And as you grow up and you live in the world, you might hear the name and you might form a concept of who Jesus is, but most people have no clue who he really, really is. And the scripture says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And man, if, if, if we can help people give a glimpse of the real Jesus, they will see how good he is. And they will desire him. If people can see how good Jesus who Jesus is for who He really is, you can't help but love him. And so God wants us to preach the gospel. He wants us to talk about him. He wants us to share our faith. Revelations 12:11 says, "They, the people of God, triumphed over him, who is the devil, by the way, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. The whole context of this passage is the devil is enraged that he got defeated by Jesus. So he's, he's going off to make war against those who believe in Jesus. And it says they, the Christians who are coming under severe spiritual warfare and persecution, how did they overcome him? By the blood of the lamb, the gospel, <laughs> and the word of their testimony. The 12 apostles were called to be witnesses of Jesus. That was through their personal testimony of witnessing who he is. So he brings them up on the Mount of Transfiguration and three of them literally saw him transfigured and they know he's talking with Moses and Elijah, supernatural thing. And Peter says later on in the letter he wrote, we didn't follow cleverly invented stories. We were there on the mountain when he transfigured. This really happened. And the Apostle Paul met him on the road to Damascus. And the Apostle Paul writes about, man, there were, he appeared to over 500 people at one time after he rose from the dead. And he said, many of whom are still alive. And that was his way of saying, go fact check me. There are eyewitnesses. So the eyewitnesses of God in flesh gave validity to what? The hundreds of scriptures of the Old Testament that the Messiah is coming. This is all true. So when you believe in the gospel, you become a believer. You start to live a life of prayer. God answers your prayer. You have supernatural experiences. You have supernatural experiences of answered prayer. And you you don't just believe or think God is real. Now you know that you know God is real. Guess what? Now you're a witness of the reality of God. And when, listen, there's a whole lot of people on the earth who if you just come at them with the Bible and go, the Bible says, you know, The Bible says, you know, if you come at them with that, they're just boom, shut down. Why? Because the enemy's blinded their minds. They think the Bible's missed. Oh, nope. You lost me at Bible. But if you go in and saying, Hey, you know, why are you so great? Why do you do that? Why, how did you end up the way you are? You're just a great person. Oh, trust me. It ain't me. You didn't know me when I was 20. <laughs> Here's what happened to me. And you tell them your story. You tell them, It's God, man. Here's what God did in my life. And here's what happens. This has happened to me several times now. People that are hardened against the truth of scripture, when you tell them your story, they know you. They know you're not lying when you're telling them. And and they go, oh, wow. And your witness softens their heart and they start to think things like, maybe this God thing is true. Maybe the Bible is true. True, maybe I should go to church, and so your story is so important. And God gave you your specific story for a specific reason. He could save all of us in one specific way if He wanted to, but He doesn't. I know three people who were saved because they heard an audible voice—the audible voice of God—speak to them, and they did not go to church at the time, and they didn't know Jesus at the time, and they were like, "Oh my goodness!" And then they they went to church and they got saved. Right? They're like, "God's real." right? That's amazing. But so often we think if, if we don't have a story like that, then we have nothing to share. God saved you the way he saved you because your story will speak to different people. You know what those people struggle with? I can't share my story because people think I'm crazy. <laughs> so the enemy's working all these things to try to keep us from sharing our stories and talking about Jesus and how awesome he is. And one thing that I've just learned to do is, especially when I'm in a moment out in the world with someone that I know is not a believer and I start feeling led to share my story, mentally, I, I treat them as if they're part of my church family. And when I share this, they're just going to think it's awesome. That's what I do. And it's, it works. It helps. Because we start to think, oh, if I share this, we think worst case scenario, they're going to they're gonna like get the, the, the nails and hammer out and try to crucify me right? They're just going to reject me. And man, I just tell you the majority of times I've felt led to share my story and I do, I have the courage to do it. It actually has had really good results the vast majority of times because the Holy Spirit knows what he's doing. And so God wants us to be preaching the gospel and to be sharing our stories. And, and one last strategy God uses is in a post-Christian culture where we've, we've used to know the Lord, but we've, we've fallen away like, my people are destroyed for, from lack of knowledge in Hosea. They, they, they have a form of godliness, but they've fallen away from Him. It's gotten stale, it's gotten old, they're really not following Him. That's when God brings revival. And Psalm 85:4, revival is one of God's spiritual warfare strategies to wake us up. Will you not revive us again? that your people will rejoice in you. Psalm 85, verse four. Will you not revive us again? Revival is like a quickening of your heart and mind where you, God just kind blows of blows a fresh wind into your heart and mind and you have a fresh revelation. Oh, God's real, right? God's real. And uh-oh, I haven't been living for him. Uh-oh, I better get right with him, right? And he empowers you uh, to live the way he wants you to live. So second strategy the enemy brings against individuals is unbelief, a mindset of unbelief. Unbelief is not atheism. Unbelief is not, I don't believe in God. Unbelief is the difference of believing in God versus believing God. That's what unbelief is. So in the Greek... In the New Testament, the word for faith is pistis. Jesus, in Matthew 17, rebukes his disciples because they have apistia, which is the opposite of faith, or the absence of faith. The King James renders it unbelief. This is Matthew's version of the story where they can't drive out the demon. And they say, why couldn't we drive it out? In Mark's account, it says, because this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. Matthew's account says, because you have so little faith in the NIV, you have so little faith in the King James. It says, because of your unbelief, apistia, the absence of faith and confidence in God. Do we have that verse, by the way? Did I put that on there? No? Okay. That's all right. I was going to point it out. But because of your unbelief, they couldn't drive out the demon. Now, these are the 12 disciples of Jesus. Do they believe God is real? Yes. Were they in Mark chapter 6 driving out demons? Yes. Now in Mark chapter 9, they can't. Why? Because of unbelief. They believe in God, but they've encountered a moment where they're not believing God in some way. And so they're unable to do what God has called them to do. And what God says they are able to do. Because Jesus gave them power and authority to drive out the demons. James 2 verse 19 says it this way. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. What James is saying is, if you just believe in God but you don't believe God, trust him enough to do what he says and be obedient, then it's not saving faith. And what he's saying is, if you believe in God, but you don't trust him enough to obey him, that means your faith is at the level of demonic. Faith that is disobedient to God is demonic faith. The demons, they don't just believe in God. They know God's real. They used to be with him and gaze upon his glory in heaven. They were cast to the earth. They believe in him, but they don't believe him. They don't trust him, so they don't obey him. And so unbelief is when you believe in God, but you don't believe him, so you don't do what he says. This is Hebrews chapter 3 where it's talking about the promised land. Today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts. And it walks through how the Israelites in Hebrews 3, they heard God's voice and he told them to go into the promised land and slay the giants and it's gonna be good, right? He's got a good land for them, flowing with milk and honey, houses you didn't build, vineyards you didn't plant. It's gonna be good, just trust me. And he told them in the Old Testament, show up to the battle and I'm going to be with you, and I'm actually going to win the battle. And that's a word for y'all today, for all of us today. We all have battles in our lives. Show up to the battle. God's going to fight with you. God's going to win the battle, but you have to show up. All you got to do is show up, and God's going to go with you, and he's going to fight for you, and he's going to win. But the last verse of Hebrews 3, verse 19 says, so we see they were not able to enter because... There were giants in the land? No, because of their unbelief. Did they believe in God? Oh, you better believe they believed in God. If you were at a mountain and you heard an audible voice speak the Ten Commandments while the mountain was shaking, on on fire raining down on it, you would believe in God too. If you heard Moses say, Hey, just keep still, God's gonna fight for you, and then the Red Sea parts you would believe in God too. If you lived in a wilderness for 40 years and you saw a, a flaming tornado 24-7, by the way, it never went away. And then when it stayed there, it's, you get up in the morning and be like, what's the flaming tornado doing today? Oh, it's sitting, I guess we're staying here today. All right. Oh, it's moving out. Hey, kids, pack the bags. The, the, the flaming tornado is moving out. The pillar of cloud, what is a pillar of cloud? It's tornado, Right? Is on fire at night. Some of y'all seem confused when I'm saying flaming tornado. You didn't realize that's in the Bible. They, it's supernatural for 40 years. Manna raining down from heaven out of nowhere. Just food wasn't there the day before. And God said through Moses, uh, starting tomorrow, there's going to be like food just laying everywhere. So it's just God. It's like the bread of angels or something. I don't know. Just go out and pick it up. Oh, and by the way, if you get too much, on an average day, it's going to rot, and you can't eat it the next day. But on the sixth day, uh, you're going to have it won't rot. Um, and then on the seventh, so on the seventh day, and the reason is, so on the seventh day, you rest and you don't gather because it's the, it's the Sabbath. This food of angels doesn't even operate to normal physical laws. So on Monday and Tuesday, by the next day, it's rotten. But on Friday. On, by, on Saturday, it's not going to rot. You see what I'm saying? Did they believe in God? Oh, yes. Now go into the promised land, slay the giants, take the land. Oh, we can't do that. <sighs> Why? They didn't believe God. They didn't trust him that he was going to do what he said, that he was going to win their battles. That's called unbelief. They couldn't enter because of their unbelief. Bill Johnson once said, And I'm paraphrasing him, but he was basically talking about why the church is so powerless so much, especially in America. And he said, the reason is this, because the Holy Spirit stays locked up inside of unbelieving believers. God has us things he's wanting us to do by the power of the Holy Spirit, but we don't believe him. We don't trust him. And so we don't do it. And we die in the wildernesses of our lives because of a lack of faith, and that's what the enemy wants. He wants to keep us in unbelief. So what's the deceptive mindset he uses to keep us in unbelief? Why would they not believe God? You know, it's easy for us to read the Bible. like It's God. Just do what he says. You're going to win, you know, and then you get in the same situation. You're in your wilderness. You're like, oh, I don't know. I want to go back to Egypt, you know. It's easy when you're reading the Bible. What is The deceptive mindset. I wrote it down this way. It's very often an over-focus on the negative in your life. Doesn't that sound so simple? And it's one of the simplest. A lot of the strategies the enemy uses are extremely simple. But they're effective. So he uses them over and over again. Just think about the negative. Why do I say that? The Psalms say many are the troubles of the righteous but the Lord delivers him from them all. We we tend to think that when we come to faith in Christ, everything's going to be perfect. He's just going to take care of all of our problems from then on out. And we don't realize the Bible does not promise us that. We're not promised an easy road when we get Jesus in our lives. Many are the troubles of the righteous. What's what what good is it then to have God in your life? Many are the troubles of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him from them all. Like We have to go through many trials to enter the kingdom of God. Christians have as many problems as people who don't know Christ, if not more problems, if you throw persecution in there, right? The difference is we have God who goes with us through our problems, who fights our battles for us, and promises to deliver us from every single trial that we go through. That's the difference. The power of the presence of God in our lives. We have a loving father. He comforts us. He provides for us. We have God to go with us. But that means, yes, we have God, but we have all the problems. We have all these issues constantly. New day, there's new problems. There's new troubles. And here's what the enemy will do. Just think about the bad. Just think about the negative. Just think about what stinks in your life. You know why? It'll harden your heart. And you'll start to lose sight of the fact that God is with you. And you'll start to forget about all the good things he's doing. Just like the complaining and grumbling in the wilderness. God is raining down supernatural bread every day. He's brought water out of a rock. He brought quail, surrounded the camp, you know, up to like knee high or whatever it says, you know. So that they could have meat every day. Wasn't good enough. This is so hard. We don't have fish like we we have have that. We don't have fish like we had in Egypt. We got water over rocks, not the Nile River. And that was so beautiful. And they're just focused on what they don't have. They're focused on the negative. And the over-focus on the negative hardens their hearts so they don't trust God. He probably brought us out here to kill us. That's probably why. Wouldn't grave big enough in Egypt. Just going to bring us out here and kill us out here. That's probably why. They said this stuff. Hebrews 3 says they could not enter because of their unbelief. Oh, I'm sorry. It's not Hebrews 3. It's in Corinthians. It says because they grumbled and complained. Did you know just complaining is listed as a very serious sin to God? Very serious sin. You know, every week when we do that um, communion, repentance, prayer, And it's like, I repent of any negative words every week. I'm like, dang, I said some negative words. I I did a little complaining this week. Even just a little is bad. It says, do everything without grumbling or complaining in scripture. Why is that? When you complain, you're focused on the negative, but you're focused on the negative to the point that you start agreeing with it, so you start speaking it. Your words are powerful. The power of life and death is in the tongue. This is why you need to repent of word curses and break the bindings of them on your life when they come out of your own mouth. When you say negative things against yourself, against your church, against the Lord, or against people, or against, well, the situation's never going to get better. Oh, what great faith you have in the God who can do all things. That's actually a word curse. There's zero faith in it and zero hope in it. It's against what scripture teaches about the nature of God. Why is that a bad thing to do? Jesus said, don't swear on anything. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. You know, old school American values is be a man of your word. If you say yes, then you mean yes and you do it. Well, guess what? In the spirit, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Your words are binding agreements. The moment you say a word, you've agreed with that thought and and, where the source of that thought came from. So if you're having negative thoughts and feelings and they are not of God, right? You're being enticed by the enemy. When you start to say these things out loud like you agree with them, you are making binding agreements with the enemy. You're empowering the devil in your life. And that's why it's so bad. That's why it's not a good thing. You know, the Bible says that we enter... His gates with thanksgiving, and we enter his courts with praise. To enter God's gates and his courts means like his house has gate and a court, and we're coming. We're coming through the gate into his court. In other words, we're coming into the presence of God. How? By thanksgiving and praise. By focusing on the good, we remind. We suddenly become aware of the fact that God is with us, even in the worst circumstances. And Bill Johnson was talking about this one time, and and he, again, I'm going to paraphrase a quote from him, but he said it this way. If we enter his gates through thanksgiving, whose presence do we enter through complaining? I would say it this way. Praise and thanksgiving is the worship of the God of heaven. Complaining is the worship of the devil. (laughs) You're giving him glory and so he wants you to overfocus on the negative in your life, hopefully get you to the point where you start talking about it and complaining and grumbling about it because it's separating you from the presence of Christ and it's hardening your heart and it's darkening your understanding. And then God comes along and he goes, "And now I want you to do this. I want you to put out to deep water for a catch. I want you to go into the promised land and slay those giants." And God in other words, God asks you to do something that's difficult in obedience. Eventually at some point And if your heart's hard towards him and you're not trusting him because you've been overly focused on the negative, you're not going to want to do it. And that's his attack against our hearts. And so what is the weapon of our warfare that God has given us to come against this strategy, of the enemy? I've already talked about one of them. I'm going to mention two. Praise and thanksgiving and, and then obedience. So we talked about praise and thanksgiving think about it this way. Even when you have really hard things going on in your life, and it's easy. If, if I ask anybody in here, what, what sucks in your life right now? <laughs> you, you give me a laundry list, right? But it's also true, well, what do you have to be thankful for in your life right now? Practicing gratitude is a spiritual discipline, and it's one we need to do way more often. The Bible talks so much about this giving thanks, giving thanks, giving thanks. Romans 1, the progression of degradation, it says they stopped giving thanks. Philippians 4, when you're anxious and troubled, you know, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, present your request to God. It says with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving, present your request to God. Turn your worries into prayers. Thanksgiving is woven all throughout Scripture. The Psalms, the Bible, over and over and over again says, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. It's a command. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Tell him how good he is. And here's the deal. God does not want your praise to be manufactured. And what I mean by that is, if I'm like, praise the Lord, you're like, God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. Okay. Praise the Lord because... He'll probably kill you and send you to hell if you don't. Okay. I don't have no reason to praise him, but I'm gonna praise him because he's the king. I'm just gonna pray. Like you're just you're just praising him, but it's not authentic. That's what I mean by man- manufactured. God wants your praise to be authentic. So when the scriptures say praise the Lord, when we say it at church, here's here's the process God wants you to go through. Stop for a minute and think about a reason that you have to praise the Lord. Why is God good in my life? The cross of Jesus Christ. I mean, if that's the only reason we ever have, we'll praise him for eternity, right? But now think about this. What, what's good in your life that you enjoy? Anything. Because every good and perfect gift is from the Father of the heavenly lights. And so I think about my wife. You know, and I'm saying other than the cross and Jesus, right? What reason do we have to give thanks? I think about my wife. You know, Proverbs says that an inheritance comes from parents, but he who has a prudent wife, it's a gift from the Lord. I have a very prudent wife, right? And God's like, that That was a gift from me. Wow. Greatest gift other than Jesus in my life is my wife. I think about my kids. I think about how awesome they are. I think about, you know, I'm relatively healthy. I think about I got up today and, you know, I had some coffee and coffee is so good. You know, I think about. I think about how the fact that food tastes good and God didn't have to make it taste good. I think about the fact that, um, <laughs> when, I, no, my wife says no. <laughs> I'll say it, this way, I'm not going to personalize it. Think about the pleasurable things in life. Think about sexuality with your spouse and how that feels really good. God didn't have to make procreation feel good. It's a gift from, this is all his idea. Pleasure. Goodness, every good and perfect gift, it's all from God. And when it's in its proper place, it, they should, it should all inspire worship. The Bible talks about creation. When you look at creation, you go, wow, look how beautiful the sunset. And it's just amazing. God, you're so good. You're so good, God. Every good and perfect gift, inspire worship. And so if you're going through a hard season and you just can't help but thinking about all the negative all the time, you should stop 10 minutes a day And journal, what do I have to be thankful for? And write it out and then spend a couple minutes praying going, you know what, God, in spite of all this, thank you for this, this, and this in my life. And you're doing warfare because the enemy's going, just think about the bad, just think about the ugly, just think about the, uh, what's not good. And what does the word say in Philippians 4? Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is good, excellent, true, praiseworthy, think about such things. And Jesus is the epitome of that. So think about him, but it's not just him. Think about everything he's given you, every good and perfect gift in this life that's from God. And praise him. Think about these things. And then the second weapon of our warfare strategy is just obedience. And I'll say it this way. Whether you feel like it or not in those hard seasons, even when you're like, man, I'm not sure God is good and all this, but if you know it's God, do it anyway. I mean, that's Peter in the boat, or not even in the boat yet. You know, he's cleaning the nets. He's been fishing all night. And Jesus says, put out the deep. Lord, I've been fishing all night. I do not want to do this. Why are you asking me now, right? Why didn't you tell me to take the night off and tell me we're going to go fishing in the morning? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? I'm tired. I'm exhausted. But you know what? Because you say so, I'm going to do it. And if you will obey God no matter what, even if, I'll say this, (laughs) I'll say it this way, but it's actually not true. Even if you don't have faith for it, obey him. What do I mean by that? If it's something God wants you to do, do you think Peter was so full of faith that he was so confident? Like Jesus is like, put out the deep water for catch. And he's like, I knew it. I can't wait to go fishing today with Jesus. We're probably gonna catch such a big catch that the whole boat's gonna sink. I can't wait to go. I'm so full of faith. Is that, was that, we think that to have faith, it's like to be that. All right. And and we've, we've met some special people in our lives who are that way. And then we compare ourselves to them and we're like, they're up here. I'm down here. I have zero faith. I suck. And then we're like, oh, I feel like God's wanting me to do this, man. I don't think that's going to go well. I'm just, I'm just not going to do it. And here's what I'm saying. The Lord says, you don't need to have the hundred percent confidence faith. It says, if you just have a mustard seed of faith, you'll move mountains. So how can you tell if you have faith or not? It's not by your emotions. It's not by your great confidence and proclaiming it. You know how you can tell? Obedience. If you have enough faith to just take a step and do what God is saying, God's like, that's enough. I'll use that. And I'll come and I'll do the miracle. Just a little bit of faith. And so, when God calls you to do something, whether you feel like it or not, whether you think it's going to work or not, do it. That's what proves that you have trust and faith in God, is obedience. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the famous German believer who was executed by Hitler's regime, he said, uh, only he who believes obeys, and only he who obeys believes. And, And he's basically saying what James is saying, faith without deeds is dead. You believe there's one God, good. The demons believe that. We have to trust God. And if you're struggling with trusting him, start thanking him and praising him for his goodness in your life. And it'll, it'll soften your heart up and get you focused back on his presence. And you'll have, your faith will be restored. Your trust in him will be restored so that you can obey. The third uh, tactic the enemy brings against us is temptation temptation to sin or to believe things about God that aren't true, right? James 1, 13 through 15 says, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it's full grown gives birth to death. Okay. So God doesn't tempt people. There's two things at play. There's the enemy that's Focusing you on desires. You, have, you and I have desires. So there's your own is at work, but the enemy plays on your own desire to tempt you to do things that are not of God. And that's how temptation works. Now the word there, it's translated evil desires, but in the Greek, it's just desires. By your own desires, you're dragged away and enticed. And here's what I've noticed about sin. The vast majority of time when people sin, they're really looking to fulfill good needs and desires that God wired in them and put in them, but they're looking to fulfill them in ways that God has prohibited. So if you think of a uh, pleasure in life, God wants you to have pleasure, right? He wants you to, he created pleasure. He, he's given us all things for our enjoyment, which is pleasure, right? That's, that's what that means. But when we go seeking it in ways that God has prohibited, like through drunkenness or, Um, Drug use, that's actually manufactured pleasure. It's actually, you know, getting high is like a counterfeit for God's joy. That's what that is. And so I think Leonard Ravenhill said entertainment is a counterfeit for joy. (laughs) And so um, we go after things to try to get good things, good needs God's wired in us, but we go outside of God's will to get them. That's the vast, vast majority of sin, okay? Okay. And uh, you think about sexuality. That's a gift God has given to bless marriage. But it's only legal, so to speak. The way God has prescribed for us to go about that is one man, one woman in a marriage for life. And in those confines, that's the only way it's safe. Outside of that, it's very destructive. Okay? When it's, when it's used and abused, it destroys people. It harms people. And God knows that. And so he's given us these safe boundaries of a committed, loving marriage and yet so many people, they're going after that need in their life, this, this wiring God has put in them, this desire, very strong drive that we have, but they go outside of God's will to fulfill it. So what is the deceptive mindset the enemy uses to get people to go along with this? It's usually two things working together, a belief that God's not good in some way, right? We saw that in the original temptation with Adam and Eve. Uh, You know, casting doubt on God's character. But then also, usually, again, with most types of sin, it's I want it now. I don't want to have to go through God's process and wait on the Lord and do it the way he wants it done. I I want it right now. And so because I want it now and I'm not going to be patient and wait on the Lord, I'm going to take hold of it myself and I'm going to do it the way that I want to do it. First Corinthians 10, 13 says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So it's saying you're never going to be tempted to the point that it's like the devil's holding a gun to your head and you had no choice. Right? Even if the devil held a gun to your head, you still have a choice, don't you? So if you end up sinning, you are responsible at some level. That's what God's saying. But he's also saying, whenever you're tempted, he's going to provide a way out. And again, here's what I've discovered. Most sins, do you know what the way out is? Waiting. Just waiting. Wait, so you're at the party as an 18-year-old, and maybe you shouldn't have come, but here you are, and they're drinking, they're doing drugs, and they're offering it to you, and you're pressured. and you're like, what do I do? Oh, this moment is so hard. What do I do? I'm scared. Oh, what do I do? Peer pressure. Oh, it's coming at me. What if you did nothing? And you just wait about an hour, and then the party's over, and it's time to go home. You just wait. You get into a relationship with someone, you really like them, and you're tempted to give yourself to them sexually, and oh, what do you do? And oh, what do we do in this moment? I don't know, what do we do? What should we do, God? (gasps) What if you just wait? (laughs) And the moment passes, and then you wait to go through that experience the way that God has prescribed. A whole lot of sin can be avoided when we just wait. You know, it's not just sinful things. Sometimes we try to take God's will into our own hands and make it happen, and it becomes sin. And you think of Abraham and Hagar, right? I, I mean, the dude had to wait. I mean, at that point, it's 75 years plus 12. Uh, it's 87 years he's been waiting for a kid. That's, that's, that's a long time. All right. The dude's been waiting, but he gives up waiting and he goes, all right, his wife gives up waiting. All right, we'll do it this way. Not God's way. Moses at 40 years old kills the Egyptian. Why? He didn't wait on God to bring about him delivering the people in the way God wanted And so he ends up sinning and really causing 40 years of his life to go down the drain because he took, he tried to do God's will, but he did it in his own strength and and was trying to control what he believed. He got self-righteous, you know, tried to control and make God's will happen. So I wrote this in my notes. Waiting on God is spiritual warfare. When you wait and trust, when you wait and hope. This is a silly little story that happened a few years ago, but God taught me about waiting on God through this in a, in a major way. But it was right after we moved here, we started this church and we were going and it, it was probably Father's Day, I don't remember, but I was supposed to play golf after church with my dad and my brothers-in-law. And after church, I prayed with some people and ministered and it went kind of long. And so now I'm gonna be late. And I'm like, I ended the prayer and I'm like, all right, I gotta go, I gotta go. And I just run out of the building, you know, and I get in the car and I'm looking at the time and how long it's gonna take. And it's like, I'm gonna be 15 minutes late. And so in that moment, I'm on the way. You know, we have a tea time. There's pressure, right? It's, it's like a day for golf, right? There's a lot of people there probably. I'm freaking out. And so I'm tempted in that moment to do what? To speed. Now, I know none of you good Christian people have ever broken the speed limit in your life. But from time to time, I'm tempted, and I've succumbed to that temptation. And so I'm being tempted. I'm like, i got to get there. And so I start to speed up. And I'm like, you know, nine, you're fine. Ten, you're mine. You ever heard that? And so I'm like riding that limit. I'm like, forget it. You know, I'm just, I go like 15, 20. I'm like, I got to get there. I got to make up. Oh, I can make up some time, you know. And in that moment, all these thoughts start flooding my brain. And it's all the negative things that can happen when you're speeding. You could wreck. You could get a ticket. You know, this could happen. And I'm like, "Mm, mm." and I'm starting to think about this stuff. And then I have this thought, and I believe this is truly the grace of God, like Holy Spirit. And this is the thought I have. You know, what if you're speeding for no reason? Because what if you get there and it's like super busy day and the tee times are backed up? And so even if you speed, you get there and they haven't even teed off yet. So what if you're putting all this pressure to try to control this situation, but it's for no reason? And I just go, oh. And I literally was like, you know what? I'm going to trust that this situation is going to work out all right. And so because I'm going to trust, I'm going to do absolutely nothing and I'm going to go to speed limit and just see what happens. So I slow back down. I go to the speed limit. I get there. I'm like 15, 20 minutes late. I'm like, Oh my goodness. Still, still frustrated, you know, but I'm like, all right, all right. I get out of the car. I walk up. My family members are on the putting green, putting around 15, 15, 20 minutes past our tea time. I'm like, what's going on? They're like, well, it's a super busy day. They're all backed up. We haven't even teed off yet. I'm like, all righty then. <laughs> and I vividly remember this because it was this little moment where God's like, I'm teaching you something here. In the moment, the high pressure moments of life, when you feel like you're pressured, you got to do something to make it happen. What if you learn to trust God? Especially in the moments you lose your job. Your spouse divorces you and there's nothing you can do. And you're so frustrated and there's so much you want to do to try to make it right. What if you just trust God that he's going to work this for good in your life? So waiting on God is spiritual, spiritual warfare. Isaiah 40:31 says, But those that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles, run and not be weary, walk and not faint. Psalm 25, 3. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. The word for hope here in Psalm 25 and the word for wait in Isaiah 40, 31 is the same word in Hebrew. The word for wait in Hebrew is the same word for hope. When you're waiting on God, you're waiting in hope that you can trust he's good and he's going to do what he said he would do. And he's going to come through. Fourth strategy the enemy brings against us is what I'm calling selfishness. It's also known as idolatry. Selfishness. This is when, uh, you're engaging in things that are not necessarily sinful. They could be, they're good things even, but you're just putting them above your relationship with God in your life. So that's idolatry. That's, you're, you're taking something good. God's given you like money or your hobbies or entertainment, and you're putting it above, the Lord and his calling in your life. And Jesus told a story about this in Luke 14. I'll summarize where he, this man invites all these people to a banquet and it says they each begin to give excuses. The verse says, I've bought a field and I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another says, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I need to try them out. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. These are all good things but they're using them as excuses and putting them ahead of the kingdom of God in their life and the invitation of God in their life. Jesus told the parable of the sower in Mark chapter four and the third type of soil, the thorny soil, he said, still others like seed sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things come in and choke the word, making it un." fruitful. The deceptive mindset that the enemy uses is an rather than an over-focus on the negative to get us to mistrust God, if we won't give into that, he's going to cause us an over-focus on the positive things in our life to put them ahead of God and to replace our relationship with God, that we should be seeking God for our provision and our comfort and our purpose in life. But when we start to use those other things for those source needs in our lives, we're giving into idolatry. And this is especially, Jesus said, the deceitfulness of wealth, it's especially prevalent in affluent cultures like the one we live in. We live in an extremely affluent culture. There's so many choices before you of entertainment. There's so many choices before you of hobbies and things you can give your time and attention to. And when you put those things ahead of the Lord, your time with the Lord, your church family, the calling and mission of God on your life, that's when you start to give in to selfishness. So what is the strategy, the weapon of our warfare God's given us to come against this tactic of the devil? It's called self-denial. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. There's an actual spiritual discipline you can put into practice if you feel like you're being tempted by all the good things in life. It's called fasting. So it's like, man, I just, I know like the Lord wants me to give up some of my entertainment, some of my hobbies, you know, to focus more on him. And I've been trying to balance and man, I just struggle. I just struggle. I struggle. Okay. How about for the next week or the next month? You don't balance. You just don't do any of that stuff. You totally fast it, You totally give up the hobby. You totally give up entertainment for a whole month and you just read your Bible and pray and focus on the Lord every single day. All of a sudden you're not struggling anymore. <laughs> it's self-denial. It's fasting until things are in a right priority level. And so you can fast, and then just, it's really about priority of focus. Jesus said, Matthew six thirty-three: seek the kingdom of God first. Seek first the kingdom of God. It's about priority. When Jesus was calling disciples in uh, Luke chapter nine, the one man said, I'll come, but first let me go and bury my father. Still another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And so selfishness and idolatry separate us from the Lord when we're like, no, I'll do what God wants, but first I'm gonna do all this other stuff. And the Lord says to come against that. No, first you seek the kingdom of God. First you seek Jesus every single day in your life. First, you prioritize your church family. First, you prioritize uh, training up your children in the way they should go. First, you prioritize doing God's will in your life. And then, it's not that you can't have other good things in your life. You can't have entertainment. Your kids can't be involved in sports and all that stuff. No, it just comes after the things of God. That's what God's after. And uh, if you have trouble with that, again, self-denial and fasting in particular is a strategy of God. In 2020, the Lord spoke a word to me about Daniel through reading Daniel and the word was lifestyle of fasting. And what Daniel lived in an the most opulent culture of that time and the most affluent in Babylon. He, like us, he had many choices of things he could give his time and attention to. He chose a lifestyle fasting. We do a Daniel fast and we fast for like 10 or 21 days and then we're like, okay, good. I did my fast for the year. Now I get to live for myself the rest of the year. Woo, let's enjoy life. Daniel fasted. It was a lifestyle of fasting. It was, I'm going to intentionally not overindulge in the things of the world so that I can stay focused on God. And he prayed three times a day and he didn't eat meat and rich foods, like constantly, so that he could keep focusing on the Lord. The last strategy the enemy uses against people as individuals is isolation. And this is really a catch-all to separate you from Christ. So he really uses the previous four things we've talk, talked about because if you stay in ignorance and unbelief, you have no power to overcome temptation. You stay distracted and fascinated with things other than God. And that keeps you separated from your relationship with Jesus. So what is the weapon of our warfare God has given us to come against this separation, this isolation from our relationship with God? It's the personal spiritual disciplines. Personal spiritual disciplines that keep you rooted and grounded in Christ, abiding in him and connected to the vine. What do I mean by spiritual disciplines? I'm talking about prayer, reading the Bible, worship, church attendance and involvement. And then what I call acts of faith or good works. So service, generosity, acts of kindness and sharing your faith. Like, we always need to be doing these things. If these things I've just mentioned are not habits in your daily life, then you're probably going to be struggling with one of the things that I just, one of the strategies of the enemy that we just talked about. Because the spiritual disciplines are what keep you connected to Jesus, that keep you practicing the presence, that keep you staying in his presence to where the enemy's not, his, his work is not affecting you. And I've said this once, and I'll say it again, and I'll say it a million times. The best form of spiritual warfare is proactively pursuing Jesus. There's that old hymn that says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim. You know what the devil hates the most is when we're so focused on Jesus, we forget he completely that he even exists. When we're looking full in the face of Jesus and we're, as the Psalm says, what is it? Psalm 84. I'm going to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Or is that Psalm 27? I'm going to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord in his temple. Oh, I'm just so focused on how good Jesus is. I'm seeking his face every day. God, you're so good. Jesus, you're so good. The things of the world lose their luster. Uh, They grow strangely dim. I'm not even aware that the enemy exists because I'm just so full of joy because I'm just so connected to Jesus. That's the best form of spiritual warfare. Temptation has no hold on you. Selfishness and pride, it has no hold on you. You're just focused on Jesus. The problem is that sometimes you're trying to gaze upon the beauty of Jesus and stay connected to him, but the devil gets in between right? And you're trying to look at Jesus, but the devil's like this. And you're like, can you get out of my face? I'm try- trying to look at Jesus. And that right there is why we need deliverance prayer and deliverance ministry. Because some people get so bound up, they, they try to go to church, they try to read their Bible, they try to pray, and they- there's no breakthrough. It's like they can't see his face and all they can see is the devil and his work and what he's doing. And so in that case, let's have a prayer session. Let's pray through that. Let's renounce these bindings. Let's repent together. And let's break and let's command. Uh, Get out of here in the name of Jesus. Away from this person, Satan. You got rid of the demonic presence. Now gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And so deliverance prayer and deliverance ministry is important. That's what helps people get free. But if you want to live free, You need to learn how to make the spiritual disciplines habits in your life. Leonard Ravenhill said it this way, prayer will kill your desire for sin and sin will kill your desire for prayer. And I love that quote. I love Leonard Ravenhill and all the stuff he's written. But it hit me this week as I was studying into this message, if you swap the word prayer for any of those spiritual disciplines, it's true. Like reading your Bible will kill your desire for sin and sin will kill your desire for reading your Bible. Going to church and being a part of a healthy, thriving church will help kill your desire for sin and sinning will kill your desire to want to be a part of a good, healthy church family. You see what I'm saying? Doing good works in the name of Jesus to bless other people, oh, it just fills you with this joy. and Like you just don't want to sin as much, but if you give in to sin, then you don't want to do good works in the name of Jesus. And so... All of the spiritual disciplines help connect you with Jesus in a way that it kills your desire for sin and it totally destroys all of these other strategies of the enemy. My mentor in deliverance ministry, Harold Oberslake from Open Heaven Ministries, he says it this way, discipleship doesn't take the place of deliverance and deliverance doesn't take the place of discipleship. It's, it's both. We need both. It's Best form of spiritual warfare, gazing upon the beauty of Jesus, praying daily, meditating on his goodness, praising him, thanking him, worshiping him, reading the Bible, being a part of a good church family, doing the good works he's called me to do. I just want to think about Jesus. But man, sometimes the enemy gets in the way. And that's where deliverance ministry becomes helpful. Get out of my face. You know, get that corn out of my face. Get that devil out of my face. You know what I'm saying? Get out of. I want to focus on Jesus. I want to focus on Jesus. And so I want to encourage you as we close today, we're going through a series on spiritual warfare. We're talking about deliverance prayer, deliverance ministry, spiritual warfare prayer. Proactively pursuing Christ is the best form of spiritual warfare. Amen. Let's pray. God, we just thank you so much for our time together. And Lord, I just pray right now that you would just give us the grace to enjoy our time with you in all the spiritual disciplines you call us to. And I just pray that over our church family, that you would give us great joy in prayer, (laughs) that you would give us great joy when when we read your word, that you would give us great joy when we come to church and we participate and we worship and we serve and we encourage one another, that you would give us great joy when we do good works in your name, God, that we would enjoy your presence, enjoy seeking you first, God, and that this would be the greatest form of spiritual warfare that we engage in, God. And I even pray this. I pray we need, we need deliverance prayer less and less in this church body because we are discipling people in loving Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I just ask for that in your mighty name. And I thank you for that, God. So just bless us this week. Fill these people with love, joy, peace, hope, and faith as we go out from this place. And help us to practice the presence, to live in your presence all this week. And we ask all these things in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.